Luke chapter 18 will be the focus of our attention again today as I share with you a message that I've titled, Measuring with the Wrong Ruler. And just kind of collecting our thoughts around this topic, I, I heard a story about a state trooper who parked his car over to the side of Highway 14 over in Eden one day. And he was waiting to see if he might catch any drivers who were speeding as they went through town. When over the horizon, he saw this car full of five silver-haired senior ladies who were puttering along at 14 miles an hour. Well, behind that car, as you might imagine, with that sort of driving, there, there was a long line of other cars that had built up, and there were these drivers who were now all too eager to try and find a way to get around this slow-moving, 14-mile-an-hour, silver-haired ladies. So the officer said, you know, that car is just as dangerous as someone who was coming by here at 100 miles an hour because someone's really going to try and risk their lives to try and get around her. So he pulled her over. And when he did, as he approached the car, the, the driver was there waiting for him with her driver's license and registration. But but the other ladies in the car, the passengers in the car, looked like they were terrified. And, and the lady said, officer, I'm not sure what the problem would be. I, I was driving the exact speed limit. As a matter of fact, you can see it on that sign that's up ahead, right right ahead of me there. Well, the officer looks, oh, ma'am, I'm so sorry. I can actually explain this confusion for you. What you see is actually the sign that tells you the highway number and not the speed limit. So, you know, he got a little bit of a chuckle out of that, but he said, you know, I'm, I'm going to let you go with just a, just a warning this time. But, but first, I just want to ask, he was noticing, you know, those other ladies in the car were still so frightful, still so, so terrified. He said, I, I just wanted to ask, is, is everybody else in the car okay? Well, well, the little lady, she looked around. Oh, she said, oh, oh, yeah, we're just heading back from a church bingo event over in Madden. And it wasn't long ago, we turned off of Highway 135. I sure do want to tell you how much I appreciate you telling me what those signs mean. Now that's a lady who realized the error of her ways when it comes to looking to the wrong standard. She was evaluating her speed with the wrong tool. She was measuring with the wrong roller, so to speak. It's like picking up a meter stick when you really want to measure something in inches, you find yourself using the wrong tool. And, and every once in a while, I've got a project around the house where I'll need Amy or one of the kids to come and, and to hold the other end of a tape measure for me. But the problem with, with a lot of modern tape measures, really it's a problem depending on how you use it. The problem is that, you know, on the top side, you've got feet and you've got inches, but on the bottom side, you've got meters and centimeters and millimeters and sometimes I'm not always so good at conveying which side of the ruler I want to be using and so say I'm trying to measure the distance from the wall to a place where I'm going to be mounting a picture all of a sudden my measurements just don't seem to be adding up because in that moment I realize that I'm not using the right ruler and so this can be a danger even in a spiritual sort of realm. And we're going to see that particularly as we dig into Luke chapter 18 today. So if you have a Bible with you or you've got a device that's got the Bible, you've got 
some access to the Bible. You've got a neighbor who's got a Bible. Find your way to Luke chapter 18. As we're going to be diving in today to learn a little bit about this idea of using the wrong ruler. Because the same sort of thing is true when it comes to our standing before God. Far too often individuals, far too often you and I come to God using the wrong ruler. And we come up with the wrong sort of measurement in terms of how we stand before God. That's what today's passage is going to make abundantly clear for us. If we use the wrong ruler to measure where we stand in relationship to God, we will find ourselves ending up way short of where we need to be. In today's passage, Luke gives us a parable from the lips of Jesus, as well as this incident from Jesus' life that follows shortly thereafter. And both of these show us the danger of using the wrong ruler when it comes to evaluating our standing before God. Now, a parable, when we use that term, we're just talking about a simple, everyday story that illustrates a deeper spiritual truth. Jesus often used this teaching technique to just kind of throw up something that individuals were used to from their everyday lives, and they can say, oh, I know what that's like. So that he can convey to them, this is the way that God relates to you on a spiritual level. And so what we have in that parable is Jesus drawing the attention of the people through this everyday sort of situation. And Luke's parable in this instance records Jesus really giving us this contrast of two individuals who go to the temple. They're going to the same place, like to the point where they arrive at the temple, they're pretty much on the same ground. But we learn soon. That they're both going to pray. They're both going for the same purpose, but they come from very different backgrounds. The first one is all caught up in himself. He thinks he is righteous. He views other people with contempt. In fact, it's the sort of person who Jesus aims to instruct with with this parable that he gives to us. How do we know that? Well, we'll see that Luke clearly states at the beginning of this passage that Jesus told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. So Jesus, through Luke, is giving us really the the essence of what he's trying to convey to us here. He's going to show us that any ruler that convinces us that we are righteous and that other people are unworthy, that ruler would be a faulty ruler. That's a broken ruler. It's a wrong ruler to use when we're carrying out the job of evaluating our standing before the Lord, our God. Then we're going to see an incident from Jesus' life where people were bringing their little ones, their babies, their toddlers, their small children to Jesus so that he might touch them. As he's touching them, he's blessing them. But as those children were coming, his disciples caught wind of it, and they used the wrong ruler. We'll see that even those who are following Jesus end up in this moment using the wrong ruler. They're looking at the age of these children. They're looking at the knowledge of these children. They're looking at the abilities of these children. They're trying to evaluate whether or not these children are worthy of, of the miracle-working Messiah's attention in the midst of this great work that he is here to do in his busy schedule on earth. But Jesus teaches these disciples that the children, they have ruled out as being unworthy to approach Jesus 
actually have what we all need to discover if we want to approach our great God. And so as we prepare to dive into God's word, I just want to ask today, do you struggle with knowing where you stand before God? Do you ever find yourself wondering how you should measure yourself rightly in relationship to how God truly views you? Or perhaps you sometimes find yourself looking to others and thinking as you look to their lives, you know, that person's too far gone. There's no more hope for him. There's no more hope for her but me. I've got it. I've got it together. If any of these would be true for you, then you need to hear this word from the Lord Jesus today in Luke chapter 18. And I ask that you... If you're able, you might stand together that we might honor the reading of God's word as we turn now to Luke 18, starting in verse 9. Hear the word of the Lord. And he, that is Jesus, also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Jesus says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, Be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And they were bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Here ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The parable Jesus gives us as this passage starts out, it's, it's a pretty short parable. It's a simple parable where we have two men who go up to the temple to pray. But what would have shocked the original hearers of this parable in Jesus' day has really, if if we're honest, it's lost a little bit of luster in our day. Now, if you've had much exposure to the Bible, if you've grown up in church or you've spent much time in church, or even if you've heard about Jesus' many battles with the Pharisees as we've been walking through chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the Gospel of Luke, you might have kind of grown numb to the, the idea of who they are. Because we know that the Pharisees were individuals that Jesus was constantly butting heads with. He was individuals he was constantly kind of having battles with as they soaked in their self-righteousness to the extent that they were putting extra restrictions on others. They were keeping others away from the kingdom as Jesus confronted them for doing. They had the respect of the people. They were the religious experts of their day. They considered themselves and they were considered by other people to be the most holy people around. 
the most holy people in all of Judah. And every time we've encountered them, every time we've encountered these Pharisees, we've noted how they had it all wrong. They were trying to elevate themselves. They were trying to keep others out of the kingdom by enforcing these unnecessary obligations on top of God's law. So if you've studied much of the Bible or you've spent much time in church, you already know that the Pharisees were not getting it right. But the people that Jesus was speaking to in this day didn't know that. They respected the Pharisees. They looked up to the Pharisees. In their day, a Pharisee was honored like a Mother Teresa or like a Billy Graham. When someone wanted to know what the Word of God said, they trusted the advice of a Pharisee. When someone wanted to know how they should live, they looked to the example of a Pharisee. Tax collectors, on the other hand, were a greatly despised lot of individuals. And for a good reason. They were subcontractors. They were hired out by the Roman government to collect taxes from their fellow Jews. And, it, and usually the contract for who would be the tax collector went to the person who gave the highest bid. And when, the way the tax collector made his money was not only did he collect that high bid and pass it along to Rome, but Rome allowed him to collect anything over that that he wanted to collect, which would then go into his personal treasury. And so tax collectors were notorious for fleecing their own countrymen for the sake of a foreign ruling power. You can imagine how despised they might be, especially in light of the fact that the tax collectors as collecting for the government of Rome had the Roman army at their disposal such that when they levied their high taxes to build their own personal accounts and an individual could not pay the taxes... They could send the army in to essentially be the bruisers, to crack the knuckles, to devastate the home of their own fellow countrymen. And so tax collectors were often rich, but they were rich thugs, government-funded thugs. And when we encounter them in the Bible, we find them hanging out among the least respected individuals of society. That's the only place they would have been allowed they hang out with the thieves, the prostitutes, the murderers, with other notorious sinners, as we've already seen in Luke's gospel. And that's why the outcome of the passage today would have been so shocking to its original audience. Because it's not the religious expert. It's not the role model for a personal walk with God who comes away justified before him. It's the thug. It's the swindler. It's the hated man who, in Jesus' parable, comes away justified. And two words deserve a little bit of attention from us in this passage. The first is the word righteous. Jesus is speaking to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt, as we've already mentioned. This word righteous simply means to be in a right standing, to be in a right state. It's closely related to the other word that we see in verse 14. That's where the tax collector, we read, went to his house justified. When the Bible speaks of justification, or when the Bible speaks of an individual being justified, that's a term that was often used in a legal sense to describe when someone or when something was declared 
righteous. If a judge stood before a court of law, and you were in that court of law, and that judge who was presiding over that court declared your actions in some set of charges that were leveled against you to be right actions, and says you did the right thing, then you would in that moment be justified. You would be declared right. And in a biblical sense, we saw even last week how God is the good judge that will always do what is right in contrast to the lousy judge who caves when he's simply annoyed. And to be justified is to be declared right. And God justifies us in in a one-time transaction that is based on nothing more than our faith. Our trust committed to who he is and what he has done through the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul wrote to the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into his grace in which we stand and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. But not everyone wants to be justified by faith. Not everyone wants to measure his or her standing with God through the right ruler. And the Pharisee is one example of that that Jesus draws our attention to. In fact, we see in this passage, four wrong rulers that I really want to draw your attention to here. So let me just kind of walk you through these four wrong rulers that will lead us to what Jesus is warning us against. Four wrong rulers that will lead us to self-righteousness and viewing others with contempt. Here's the first one. It's the ruler of self-confidence. This Pharisee who comes to pray is very confident in his own abilities. When he comes to pray, he doesn't have anything negative to confess. This is not a prayer of confession. He doesn't have anything positive to request even. He essentially has nothing for God and he wants nothing from God. In fact, we read in verse 11 that this this Pharisee is ultimately praying to himself. Now that could mean that he was praying, you know, kind of off somewhere so that no one else could hear him as he was praying. Or it could mean that he was ultimately just aiming his prayers in what he was saying for his own ears. And we should note that Jews often pray loud in the 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. hours of prayer when sacrifices would be offered for atonement at the temple. Add to that the fact that this Pharisee never in his prayer makes a request to God I think it's safe to say that the audience of the statements of this Pharisee was none other than himself. His own self-confidence is what he is thriving in in this moment. He was like the myriads of self-help books that have been published in recent years that would tell you all about how you just need to view yourself with a little bit higher esteem. He had confidence. It was running out of his ears. In fact, when he prays to himself, he says in verse 11, I thank you that I'm not like other people. He's thankful for his own abilities. But he's using the wrong ruler. And so are you. If you are confident in your own standing without God's involvement in the equation of your own righteousness. 
If you think to yourself, oh, I'm getting along just fine. I'm doing the best that I can do, and I'm going to go on and hope for the best. And friends, let me tell you, your hope is in vain. You're using the wrong ruler. Because God doesn't evaluate you by how highly you evaluate yourself. God's word says in Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. I heard of a man who went fishing one day and he came home and told his wife, honey, take a look at this 20 pound fish that I caught while I was out fishing today. Well, his wife looked at that fish for a moment. She said, hold on just a minute. She went into the pantry. She brought out her scale and when her Husband saw that scale. He said, well, you know, it might not be quite 20 pounds. You see, when there was a standard to measure the information against, the information changed for that husband. And so many times when we truly understand what God's standard is, the same sort of thing happens in our lives. This Pharisee was ignoring God's standard. God calls for total righteousness. Anything less than total righteousness is an assault on his holy character. And friend, if you don't have total righteousness credited to your account, then you are bankrupt in God's court and you are using the wrong ruler of self-confidence. The next wrong ruler that will lead us to self-righteousness and viewing others with contempt is this, the ruler of relative holiness. That's the next ruler that the Pharisee uses. He says these words a little further in verse 11. I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. We can kind of envision him turning his nose up and pointing a little bit. This tax collector over here. He started naming names. He's putting together his checklist of sinners and he's been sure to exclude himself from that list. Why? Because he considers that whatever sin he may have committed is a less vile level of sin than the sins that other people commit. But the Bible simply won't get, let us get away with that sort of attitude. In fact, we read in James 2.10 these words. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. And you may look around and you may say, you know, my neighbor cheated on his wife. I haven't done that. My, my cousin embezzled some money from his workplace. I haven't done that. I mean, sure, I may gossip every now and then a little bit here or there. I may daydream a little bit about someone else's spouse. But at least I'm not like those people. Look, it doesn't matter that you're not like those people. If you stumble in one point, you're guilty of all of God's law. So don't look to your neighbor. Don't gauge your holiness in relationship to someone else. You stand before God based on your own conduct, not his or hers. And this Pharisee thought that he had it all together because he wasn't like those people. And still, he went away without the justification he needed. He was using the faulty ruler of relative holiness. The next wrong ruler that, we, that will lead us into self-righteousness and viewing others with contempt is this. The ruler of personal performance. 
That's where the Pharisee goes next. He begins to flaunt his resume. He begins to tout his own good works. And so he says, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get in verse 12. He's adopted this sort of mentality that whatever sin may be in his life is outweighed as if God is putting out some sort of cosmic scale to where his good deeds now outweigh the the negative sins that he's committed in the past. The law of Moses, by the way, required only one single fast per year. As for tithes, most people would pay them on their earnings, but this Pharisee is saying that he pays tithes even on the things that he buys. He's, he's covering his basis. He's building a fence around his holiness. He thinks maybe, you know, something that I bought, whoever, whoever sold that to me didn't pay the tithes on it before they sold it to me. So I'm going I'm to take care of things. I'm, I'm going to put a fence around this. I'm going to pay the tithes even on what I buy. I'm going to put a fence around this annual command to fast by fasting twice a week. I'm going to go overboard so that I can outweigh anything wrong that I might do. He's going above and beyond. He thinks that God owes him righteousness because of the things that he does. But friends, hear me on this. God doesn't owe you anything. The hope of the gospel is not that you can do enough good things to get God in your corner. The hope of the gospel is that in the midst of your bankruptcy, God offers you a pardon that you don't deserve by grace through faith. You can't earn it. It's a free gift that he offers to you through the one who has come to pay your debts. Because think about it. Like what kind of judge would God be if he overlooked our sins against his perfect and holy character just because we did some good things in its aftermath. I saw a headline on the CNN homepage just this past Friday that read three corrections officers say Nicholas Sutton protected them. He was executed on Thursday night. Now what the author of that headline is trying to convince us of is the fact that this man who was executed in the electric chair just this past Thursday, was executed unjustly. Why why would the the headline read that way? Because it wants us to think, should this individual really have been executed in light of the good things that he had done? And this article recounts those good things that Sutton, this inmate who was executed, had done in his time in prison. We read in that article that he saved one prison guard's life during a prison riot in 1985 when he physically moved that guard to safety away from five other inmates who were wielding knives seeking to take that guard hostage. That prison guard is quoted in the article as saying, I owe my life to Nick Sutton. Another prison guard said that she fell and she dropped her radio and she dropped her keys as she was walking through a vulnerable area of the prison where she served. Sutton helped her to her feet. He gave her her keys back. He radioed for help from other prison staff. Still another former prison guard said Sutton had stopped another prisoner from hitting him in the back of his head. And it's true that Sutton did some pretty good things while he was in prison. But what the headline doesn't tell you is what Nicholas Sutton had done to get on death row in the first place. He was a multiple murderer. 
when he was 19, he killed his own grandmother. Her body was found wrapped in plastic bags and chained to a concrete block at the bottom of the Nolichucky River. He also pled guilty to murdering two other individuals in North Carolina, one of them 19 years old, another 46. Then, while he was in prison for those crimes, he got into a dispute over drugs with a fellow prisoner. He killed that prisoner by stabbing him 38 times. And if that judge had granted clemency to Sutton based on the good things that he had done, how fair would that be to the families of those whose loved ones had been killed by that man? Would that judge be executing justice? I say to you, he would not. Because a good judge upholds your sentence related to the case that is before you. And we all have multiple cases by which we have been declared guilty by the creator and the judge overall. So the ruler of personal performance will always lead us astray. Friends, don't buy into that idea that being good enough will ever be good enough. Because none of us is good enough. We all need a righteousness that is greater than our own. The final wrong ruler that will lead us to self-righteousness and viewing others with contempt is this. The ruler of public respectability. It's interesting to know that when the tax collector comes to pray in verse 13... He stands some distance away. That is, he realizes he's a reject. He realizes he's not holy. He knows that nobody expects him to be close to the presence of God. The Pharisee, on the other hand, I mean, if that tax collector is standing at a distance, oh, that Pharisee, he must be standing right up front, right where everyone can see him, right where everyone can hear him, practicing his righteousness he thinks that he has the favor of the people and he thinks that if people respect him then surely god respects him as well but that's not the case and look friends it doesn't matter if everyone in the church looks at you and thinks you're getting it all right it doesn't matter if other people see you as holy You don't have to answer to the preacher. You don't have to answer to your small group leader. God is your judge. And it's not enough to just be a part of this crowd. It's not enough just to post happy Bible verses and be seen in church and to speak the good language and to talk the good talk. It's not enough to just be part of the club and to be interested in the things of God. You must be reconciled to God. You must be forgiven by him. You must be justified. Without that, no number of appearances in church, no number of these other activities or being a part of the right crowd, the right social group is going to matter. That's a similar message that the disciples learned in verses 15 and 16 as well. That's where we see that these individuals are bringing their babies to Jesus so that he would touch them. And as they were doing that, the disciples themselves break out this false ruler, this wrong ruler of public respectability. Because in their minds, these babies, these toddlers, these small children don't deserve the master's time. I mean, for goodness sake, he's on his way to Jerusalem to begin his kingdom, they're thinking. How would he have time for little children with no learning, no holiness, 
nothing to contribute to his ministry. But Jesus shows them in that moment that they're using the wrong ruler. He calls for those children saying, permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them in verse 16. You know, that's an important word for any church to hear, I'm sure. We must never get the idea that our children's ministries are lesser class citizens than the adult worship hour in which we gather here. We must be careful to never resolve to only provide child care so that the adults can enjoy the main event. Because our children need to come to Jesus. Our children need to know about him. They are greatly valued by him. And so we must not hinder them. So when someone comes to you and asks you, would you be willing to serve in our children's ministry? Would you be willing to come to this event that we're having for our children and help out? Know that you are stepping forward in that moment with your response of yes to be a first-class partner on a first-class operation for the Lord Jesus. Serving these little ones for him is not a matter of being taken away from the big event. It's a matter of partnering with him for one of the greatest causes on God's green earth. Because our God values children regardless of their public respectability. That's one of the main reasons why we must champion the rights of the unborn as well. Even from the mother's womb, God declares that he cares for every soul, every human being created in his image. So many in our day would want to convince you that the baby in the womb is nothing more than tissue in the mother's body. Don't buy that lie, friends. There's a God-woven soul in every pregnant mother's womb. And so let us cast aside the ruler of public respectability and recognize that God is the one whose rule we must pursue. That leads us to kind of consider what's the alternative? What would Jesus present for us as the proper rule? So let's move along to consider what is the ruler that we really need? And I just want to share with you briefly three lessons about the ruler that we really need. Here's the first. The ruler we really need shows us that we all fall short and stand condemned before God. That's something the tax collector understood. His sin was ever before him. So when he comes into the temple, he cannot fathom standing among those who gathered to worship our God. He stands at a distance, according to verse 13. It's it's symbolic, really, of what he understands about his own sin. Sin separates us from God. Sin creates a divide between us and our creator. In our sin, we miss his design through the things we do, which we ought not do, through the things we ought to do but do not do, and through sin, we stand condemned before God. That's the case that the Apostle Paul builds in the book of Romans, especially when we come to Romans chapter 3, where we read, both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. The tax collector realized that. He realized that he was a sinner, which is really what 
any of us must realize if we're going to come to the point where we would be led to God's provision for the sinner. That is, you must realize that you're drowning before you'll reach for the rescue rope. You must realize that your house is on fire before you'll step out the window onto that rescue ladder. And the tax collector was unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven because he was ashamed. He knew the peril that he was in. God has given us his law to show us the peril that we are in. The law is like a speed limit sign on an expressway. If it says 55 miles an hour, that's the law, okay? Now, that, that sign can't make you drive 55 miles an hour, as many of you could attest, even on your way to church today, probably. In fact, many people don't obey that law. But the law does validate the policeman who pulls you over and gives you the ticket when you're driving 75 or 85 miles an hour. He's right to judge you in that moment because you knew the standard. In other words, the purpose of the law is to reveal the standard by which the sin is measured. And once the law has done that, the Bible reveals that the law has become our tutor to point us to Christ. You see, when we realize the desperate state that we're in, when we realize the house is on fire, when we realize that we're drowning, we look for the rescue. And God's law shows us you need the rescue. And Christ has come to be the rescue. So he drives us to his, through his perfect standard to his perfect Savior who will resolve this calamity in our lives. And the ruler we need shows us that we all fall short and stand condemned before God. But also the ruler we need shows us that we all need mercy. That's where the tax collector's knowledge of his sin ultimately drove him. In verse 13, we read that he was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. When he learned of his lost estate, he showed remorse which gripped his soul through the physical acts that he was carrying out even on his person. He cried out for mercy. By the way, that word translated, be merciful to me in this passage, is not the typical phrase that the Bible uses when translating the typical Greek word that would be used to translate to give mercy or to have mercy. This, this word actually had this sense of making atonement for something. He was looking for an atonement. He was looking for a substitute that might graciously overcome his great debt, that might cover his wrongs, that might bear the wrath that he deserved. And look, maybe you're here today and you're asking, what must I do to be saved? Well, if that's you and you're asking, what must I do to be saved? Then I want you to know that it's too late for you to do anything to be saved. All of the doing that needs to be done has already been done. What you've done has already rendered you at enmity with God. But he has something so much greater than what you could do. He sent his only son to live the righteous life in your place as he bore the wrath that you deserve. There's nothing you can do because Christ has already done it all. You don't need to do anything. You just need to receive. His mercy. And that's something we need to remember. As we go about our lives living as Christians, as we encounter individuals from all sorts of backgrounds, as we encounter those who maybe don't have the same 
spiritual heritage that we have. Like really, what would this Pharisee had done if he had truly received the mercy of God that he so richly offers? He wouldn't have said, I thank you that I'm not like that tax collector. He would have said, God, would you save that tax collector? Would you reach into his life to show him the same hope that I found? Would you use me as an instrument to speak to that tax collector? Like I, I know, I know he's done so much wrong against you. But God, so have I and you blessed me with rich mercy. So let me make that known in his life. That's what we should all be doing if we truly understand his mercy. Not looking down on others, not viewing them with contempt, as Jesus says, but lifting them up to the cross to see what Christ has done. Lifting them over to the empty tomb to see he's conquered it all. Ultimately, what I want you to see is thirdly, the ruler we really need shows us that the ruler we really need is Jesus. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, Jesus says. Why? For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. How would they be exalted? Because Jesus would come to win them back. Jesus had come to show God's love for them. Jesus had come to die the death that they deserved and to eradicate the grave that they should have been placed in so that they too, so that you too, so that I too, so that we might have the common hope that God has won the victory over it all. Jesus came to exalt the humble. That's the case with these children as well. He says, permit the children to come to me. He illustrates this truth once more. Do not hinder them. Why? For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. He says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Like, like what do you think about when you think of a child? You think of inability. You think of defenselessness. You think of total dependence on someone else to do what you need. And friends, if you want to enter God's kingdom, that's where you need to find yourself so that you can fall in faith. You can fall in dependence upon the one who's done it all. As we read in Paul's writings to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he that is God, made him who knew no sin, that is Christ, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Do you you catch the exchange there, friends? Christ, the sinless one. Christ, the righteous one. Christ, the one who had never violated God's law, is willing to take the place of you and I in our sin, in our defilement, in our separation from God. He has come to take the place so that the righteousness of God might be credited to your account, so that your bankruptcy might be declared over, that you might be declared right in your standing before God. And all he calls for you to do is to come 
by faith, to turn away from your sin, to turn toward the master, to pursue him and to find his forgiveness as you fall in childlike dependence upon what he offers to you. And so I just want to ask you, have you been using the wrong ruler? Have you been evaluating your standing before God using the wrong tools? If so, then give your lives to the true ruler today. Come to him by faith. Trust in him. His mercy is abundant for you. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that even in our sin, while we were still sinners, Christ came to die for us. God, God, how could you have that much love for us? It's amazing for us to even fathom that sort of thing. How your mercy could be so great that even while we had violated your law, even while we had defiled your creation, even while we were enemies of yours, you sent your only son, your prized possession to die for us. God, how can your love be so great for us? It's hard for us to fathom. And yet we know it to be true because you show it to be true. You show it in your word consistently from cover to cover. You show it consistently in the one who's come to take our place. And so God, I just pray that in this moment, you'd help us to use the right ruler. Help us to evaluate our own lives. Help us to evaluate our standing before you in a true sense. Help us to know where we truly stand with you, oh God, that we might truly know of the love that you have for us, of the grace you've extended to us, of the mercy that overwhelms who we are and where we've been and what we've done. And Father, I pray that in the knowledge of that, you would call broken sinners to yourself. Childlike dependence. God, help us to cast away our false rulers and to stand on level ground before the cross of Christ, knowing that only he makes all the difference. Father, if there's someone here today if there are multitudes today, Lord, who are gathered in this place, who've been using the wrong ruler, who are at enmity with you because they refuse to truly see what you're calling them to through the gospel, I pray, God, today you break those barriers down. You take those rulers away. You cause your people to see your great grace, your great mercy that can make all the difference. And God, I just want to pray right now that if there's someone here, if there are multitudes here, who would be in that mentality right now, God, that you give them the courage to make it known, either through the invitation we share here now or by reaching out to someone here in this church who might just be able to, to help this individual know of the hope of the gospel. Again, we praise you for your hope. We pray that you'd help this to equip those of us who do know Christ, who have yielded our lives in this way, to have a renewed passion, a renewed fervor for sharing this hope with others, not looking down, but truly seeing that you are a God who has mercy for all. We pray it all in Jesus' name.